Welcome to the Yours in Marketing podcast. On today's episode, I am joined by a special co-host, my fellow directive friend, Sarah Drake, as we interview Max Altshuler, the VP of Marketing for recently made Unicorn Outreach. Max has a long track record of thought leadership in the sales and marketing space, and you're going to find a lot of golden nuggets of wisdom in here. Max's first claim to fame was his involvement as founder of Sales Hacker, which is a community for modern sales professionals, and it provides thought leadership, webinars, conferences, online courses, sales trainings, you name it. Sales Hacker was acquired by Outreach in 2018, and as part of that transaction, Max was brought on as Outreach's new VP of Marketing. Here's what you're going to get from this episode. How to face failure the right way. Thought leadership tips and tricks from a LinkedIn top voice in 2018 in the sales category. How to deal with the culture shock of being immersed in a unicorn-sized company. And finally, how to write a book in six days in Bali. That's right, six days. Without any further ado, here is the interview with Max Altshuler. Today we have an awesome guest, the VP of Marketing at Outreach, Max Altshuler. How are you doing, Max? Doing all right. Thanks for having me. And we also have a co-host today, Sarah Drake, who works with me at Directive. And Sarah has worked with Max in certain ways on, on articles before. So Sarah, why don't you talk about that link there and just introduce yourself? Yeah, well, hi, I'm Sarah Drake. It, really happy to be here. Max and I connected on LinkedIn. I've been following his journey at Sales Hacker after reading his book, Hacking Sales. And I wanted to do an article of sales advice of people in the industry that others look up to. And Max gave me an incredible quote to put in the article. And we've stayed connected ever since. And so it's great to be here and actually be able to talk to you, Max. Hell yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do Let's it. Let's get to it. <laughs> all right. So like I said, I, I'm not going to ask you for all these tactical things. I am more on the marketing side, whereas Sarah is more on the sales side. So for me, if you could please just explain sales engagement to me like I'm a five-year-old really quick. Sales engagement is, I'd say, the way in which you interact with your prospects and customers. So all the engagements that happen from a revenue-facing perspective. So it could be prospecting, outbound prospecting, inbound prospecting. It could be you know an AE that is engaging with multiple stakeholders in a, you know middle or end of a sales cycle. It can be a customer success representative who is starting a conversation or continuing a conversation that leads up to a renewal or an upsell, and really anything revenue focused. I mean, you talk about the ability to forecast, you know, right now you're in Salesforce and you pull a report and somebody's like, yeah, this deal is going to close this quarter. But if you understood the activity from your engagement layer, you know, your outreach, your sales engagement platform, then you'd know that, you know, you've sent 16 emails and tried to call them 10 times and they've only responded once, then it might not be closing this quarter. So uh, leadership, management, um, and all of your revenue representatives should all be partaking and engaging in, in modern sales engagement. Okay. That, that, that's helpful for me. Cause I, like I said, I'm coming from a marketing standpoint, but let's talk about that a little bit because you come from a sales standpoint and, and from a marketing background as well. You've got the both. Okay. So let's talk about that because those two things clearly have a lot of overlap. There's a lot in, a lot in common, but there are some significant distinctions. So could you just take us through the difference between a sales mindset versus a marketing mindset? Well, they overlap a lot. And, you know, as a marketing leader, we work for sales. So, you know, sales and sales ops needs to dictate where marketing supports. So when you talk about sales engagement, sales engagement supports whatever your account-based strategy is. And I, I actually like grown to hate the term account-based marketing because there's almost no such thing as account-based marketing. Account-based, whatever you call it, orchestration, engagement, execution, the entire revenue org has to be behind it. It is led by sales, dictated by sales. Target accounts are selected by sales ops. What you decide to support and how you decide to support it is mostly led by sales. And marketing is there to support their sales org, their sales team. So whether it's sending direct mail or inviting somebody to an event locally, that has to be really done and led by sales with marketing's support and not the other way around. So um, if anything, it would be account-based sales. But we as a marketing organization are, are really heavy into getting into commercial and enterprise accounts and 
leveraging our marketing team to make sure we are supporting in the best ways possible, making sure that our reps have events nearby, have support and air cover from sending swag, have air cover from helping them drive executive alignment and getting into other areas of the organization that they're not currently in, um, helping them arm the champion with the tools that they need to uh, help sell up the ladder. Marketing is creating the enablement content that helps the salespeople do that as well. So there really is a blurred line between sales, a line that is blurring further and further between sales and marketing these days. And and um, I wouldn't be surprised if it was just a, called the revenue organization and you know, the next few years, because it's connecting more than ever before. And then for the smaller deals, for companies that do, you know, SMB and mid-market, we do that as well. There's the general air cover and demand gen that goes into that. Right. So now you're the VP of outreach, which is a pretty important title in many different organizations. So being more on the sales side at the beginning when you're creating Sales Hacker, in what ways has your experience in sales laid the groundwork for you now being the VP of marketing? And can you walk us through that? I think it's actually very important for every every head of marketing to spend time selling their product or at least spend time in sales in their career. Because you have to have extreme empathy for a salesperson. That is your partner. Those are the people that you support. You should never be thinking about it as like, oh, I have to take credit for that lead or whatnot. Like it's all about driving revenue for the company and supporting your salespeople you know, in a scalable manner that does that. Not one-off stuff, not where it's like, you know, I got to go do this one-off thing for this one sales rep because like they're asking me to do something for them right now, but in a scalable manner. The second thing is I sell, you know, outreach sells a product to salespeople. So I get the benefit of the doubt double. I understand my partner in business, my salesperson, the rep at outreach who's selling on behalf of our company, but I also understand our customer. And so I, I get a, a little bit of a double whammy because I, I am marketing to the, the, people that I know. I've been in your shoes. I understand your plight. People email all the time, cold email, cold LinkedIn, you know, message me. If, if, if I see that it is tailored and personalized, I always respond. Even if it's, you know, not interested at this time, at least I, I understand what they're going through. I at least give them a response. And I think that's the empathy in that side of it that like, okay, I've, I've been in that job. I know how hard it is. So I think it helps you be a better marketer in general, but also because we sell to salespeople. So you were with Sales Hacker. So that was like, that was your baby. That was your venture that you, you started Sales Hacker and then you were acquired by Outreach. So what was the level of culture shock that went into that, that transition from having your own thing, having your own venture, and then all of a sudden you're acquired and now you're the VP of marketing at a big company like Outreach? Oh, pretty crazy. Not only... I mean, that'd be like a normal culture shock if we had like an office. But Sales Hacker was a fully remote company. I was living in Miami in the winters and uh, the Hamptons in the summers. We had a remote team. It was a cash flow business, you know, prof- very profitable business. So going from that to now an office in Seattle, you're trying to get to nine figures in revenue. I got 35 employees that are working for me now. Like it's, it was a big culture shock, but you don't have time to be shocked by it. And I guess what I mean by that is like, there's no, there's almost like no time to think about like, holy shit, <laughs> like, th- th- you don't have that. You should be like that. And like yeah. probably your subconscious or something is like, holy shit, but you're thrown in and you're like, you're fixing the plane while it's flying. There's no time to think about anything else. So it wasn't until I finally took a vacation, let's see, um, December for like, you know, uh, the holidays and New Year's, mm-hmm. my first vacation. So I was there for August, September, October, November. Or so. so like four and a half months before I took a vacation. And that was the first time where I was really like, holy shit, this is crazy. This is good. <laughs> The culture shock I kind of set in. And then I uh, quickly went back to executing and not thinking about it. So it was a blast. I mean, it's been a lot of fun so far. I am learning a lot on the fly. I think one of the keys is to surround yourself with really good mentors and advisors. Like fortunately, 
I came from a background where I've I built a pretty good network over time and I've been able to use use that network to my advantage. I'd say make sure you surround yourself with really good team members that hold you down and can stretch and 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 take on a you know, we've got an amazing team, you know, on our marketing team and our leadership team is pretty incredible as well. And they've been super supportive. I had a coach for the first few months and that was super helpful. Yeah, we've got analyst firms that we work with. So I'm able to use them to kind of sanity check things that, I, that I'm learning, uh, learning from scratch. So having that support system has been super helpful. So coming from a fully remote team, like that's something that I've been hearing a lot about for other organizations, creating that space for people to live life and still be able to work from where they want to. So now your transition into the office, um, I know you have a passion for travel. How are you mixing that into your day-to-day now that it's so busy? Like, do you have any tips for people who don't work fully remote and still want to travel and still be successful in their career? Yeah, I mean, I'm not traveling as much anymore now that I'm at Outreach, and that's fine. You know, I've been to 80 countries, which is pretty pretty incredible. And I've had a lot of time to travel in the last five years. So my personality is very ebbs and flows. I will go hard on something for two or three years. And then I want to like do something a little bit lighter for two or three years. And then it'll, it'll be cyclical like that. So right now is my like, all right, let's go hard. Let's go big. And you know, I'll have plenty of time to travel afterwards. Like I'm a young guy. I've already traveled a lot. But when I say I ebb and flow like that, I also ebb and flow in year. So I'll do a two and a half week or two week vacation in December and then one in summer. And then in between, I like, I don't take a lot of time off because when I'm on, I'm on, I want to stay in that zone. You know, I wrote all my books. I wrote in a week in Bali because when I was in Bali, I had no distractions and I was in a zone and I could just crank it out. I would never be one of those people who, um, Oh, I want to write a book. Like I'll do an hour a day. The book will never get written. And honestly, like, I don't think there are people out there that, that actually successfully write books by doing it that way. So when you're in the zone, stay in the zone. I'd say for people who want to, to travel, join a remote company or join an organization that understands that all you care about is not being a bottleneck and getting your work done. And we do a good job of that at, at Outreach right now. Like We have people who travel every weekend. They take a day off here and there on like you know Thursday or Friday or whatever. That's fine as long as the work is done and they're not a bottleneck for the rest of the team. As long as you know the things are getting moving forward, getting responded to, and there's a process in place and, and they're online and they're, you know, getting their work done. I don't care if they want to go to Havasu or whatever for four days on a, on a weekend. And then, you know, the next weekend they want to go to Napa. That's all good. You just got to get your stuff done. Sometimes they got to answer an email from one of these places. That's fine. I want to take a step back for a sec. You were mentioning you had a coach that helped you. Um, It's important to have mentorship along the way and to have that network. So, from where did you draw inspiration in your early career? Was there a thought leader, a book, a mentor, a publication that really just pushed you to that next level when you were early on? I think like what has ended up pushing me in my life most is having a chip, a chip on my shoulder. What's your chip? Probably healthy to not have a chip. But like it's almost good to keep it. Like I could yeah. get rid of it if I wanted to. Like I could just not <laughs> care anymore. But it's like you don't want to remove the chip, you know? I was a terrible student in high school and college. My teachers were like, oh, this guy's not going to amount to shit in life. And I was a rebellious kid and I knew that I didn't do all my classes. And my mom was always trying to get me on like, you know, ADD medicine because she thought that would help or get me, you know, special help and uh, tutoring and things like that. And it's just, listen, it's okay. This isn't how I learn. But nobody ever sits and stops and asks you like those kinds of questions. I learned by doing. I'm a builder. I always wanted to build stuff. And when I finally got an opportunity to learn by doing, by building, by working at a company, by being an entrepreneur and getting in early at a startup, I excelled and I thrived. And I've I've always been passionate. I mean, as a kid, I was a hockey player and that's what I was passionate about. And I'd play five hours a day. And I was on a bunch of different teams. I was practicing. I was playing till 10 or 11 p.m. You know, every night of the week. So... That was my chip, my, oh, I'll show them type thing. And I think that's what pushed me the most in life. In terms of like mentorship and books and things like that, there is one book that my, get, my dad gave me that I always kept in my backpack when I, when I got my first job at Udemy and it was 
It's The Greatest Salesman in the World by Og Mandino. And there are some really good lessons in there about it's such a small book. It's like an hour read, but really good lessons about life in general, how to live your life, um, but also about business and, and sales and relationship building. That's always my rec- go-to recommendation. That one I kept with me for a long time. If you learn by doing, then do you actually get very much out of books? Depends. There are some of them that I like, you lost me like pretty quickly. I'm just like, ah, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can't stay engaged in this one. And then there are others that the, the story hooks you. Greatest Salesman in the World is one of them. Um, 48 Laws of Power is another one of them. The way I learn when I read is through use case. And I think that's honestly in marketing how most people, they retain information is, all right, don't just tell me. Show me an example of it. And so that's why I really like uh, Greatest Salesman in the World, 48 Laws of Power, because they do a really good job of saying, hey, here's what you need to do, and here's a here's a story that shows the example of it. I think that definitely helps in sales as well, having stories, use cases behind what you're selling, because now you're telling a story. Like marketers do that all the time, but for me personally in sales, telling a story or telling a big win of a client, that's huge because now you've become relatable. So are those the things that you connected most with, with the greatest salesman in the world? The greatest salesman in the world is a good example of it. The 48 Laws of Power is another one. When there's no other option, do something that nobody's expecting was one of the power laws or something like that. And the story that they told was there was this like really wise general in an army in you know ancient China. And he was always well prepared and he always knew what the enemy was going to do and whatever else. And he had a lot of enemies and they all, you know, they wanted to attack, but he always beat them. And then one day, unexpectedly, he was surrounded and all of his, his armies were out in the field somewhere else and he was screwed. Like he had nobody to back him up. He was about to be captured. And so he was out of options. And so what he do? He got up on the wall, faced the armies that were surrounding him and I forgot like the details of the story but like suppose he just like started playing his instrument you know like his little violin sitting up on the wall and all the like the enemies and the armies that were watching this were like he must be up to something like this is weird behavior like and they all retreated they all left I would have too (laughs) and because they like knew like oh man he's got to have something up his sleeve like they're like lulling us or whatever and you know he survived and his army came back and you know all was good. And I'm probably butchering the story because I haven't read the book in a while, but the concept is one thing to tell somebody something, but to like back it up with a story that illustrates it, it ingrains it and makes it memorable and makes it useful in the future, knowing how to mirror that to a situation that, you know, you might be in. So that's my way of learning or retaining from when I'm reading. But I'm I'm much more of a learn by doing, learn by failing. I think mm. failure is a, one of the best things that could happen to you because it's an incredible learning experience as long as you take accountability for it. What's been the most insightful failure of your life so far? So I started a social media company at a college to make American money while living abroad. That was like a, a cool business. But um, we were living in Costa Rica and Nicaragua and we were running this business and it was making just enough money for us to live like decent lifestyles on the beach and eventually we were like okay we're this is fun but we're too ambitious for this like we gotta we gotta start something this was 2011 you're starting to see the tech crunch articles with like billion dollar companies being created dropbox and yelp and airbnb and all these guys coming out and you know these 24 year old founders you know making a ton of money and whatnot so this like startup dream is just starting to be alive and so we're sitting in this living room in nicaragua and we're like brainstorming business ideas. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's do this. Let's do that. And we're like trying to, we're like putting some of our money in and trying to code these things ourselves and trying to validate these ideas and setting up landing pages to do this, that, and the other thing. And I remember like sitting there and we kept, we were kind of failing left and right at, at validating ideas. And we were hopped up on coffee, which makes you super impulsive. So, you know, we we're like, oh yeah, that's the best idea ever. Let's do it. And then, you know, like two days later, we're like, all right, this is not a good idea at all. Or like, we don't know how to pull this off or where to even start. And what that overall failure made me realize was, you know what, go 
to an early stage startup and just like see how the sausage is made internally. Go work with somebody who's been there, done that, that like has a ton of wisdom to share. You'll learn so much. It'll be an MBA in startups. And then, and then after that, you can go and start your own thing. So that mindset made me apply for the business development job at Udemy. And that kicked off my entire career. And so had I not taken accountability for that failure and not said, okay, this is, this is a, a good lesson. Let's go out and learn and then and have patience and then come back and do it again. I would have been just trying to start a bunch of startups over and over and over again, not realizing that, no, it's okay. Go, go inside with like a, an amazing entrepreneur founder, learn from them and then go back and, and try it later. And that's at that point after Udemy, right? That you, you started Sales Hacker. Yeah. I kind of just fell into Sales Hacker. But at that point, I had, I had learned so much that you know, I was ready to, to really build my own business. What did Sales Hacker look like at the beginning, though? Like- it was just a conference. The first thing we did was a Sales Hacker conference. It was a meetup, which wasn't a business. It wasn't a business until we did the first conference. And then it was just a conference in San Francisco. One-off. Wasn't supposed to be a business. And then I was like, all right, well, let's do New York. And then we were like, all right, well, let's do meetups. Let's do the blog. Let's do webinars. Kind of spiraled from there. And I think that's good. Sometimes it's like, it's good not to have a real plan. It's good to just kind of let the doors open and then walk through them as they, as they do, or at least as they uh, look a lot more inviting and things start to materialize instead of trying to force one open. You know, you think you're kicking a door in and it's a brick wall. And you spend a lot of time trying to open it and it's, it's not a door. Uh, so, you know, just being able to have the patience to let things materialize a little bit more so that you can tell what's a door and what's not. And how old were you when you started Sales Hacker? 25 or 26. So that's not that long ago. Yeah, I'd say 26, 2013. I understand you were an early investor in outreach. When did you invest in outreach? Beginning of 2015. Okay. I mean, being an investor is one thing, but what made you take that next step to actually sell Sales Hacker to Outreach and become a part of that journey? Like what in Outreach did you see that instead of just investing that you wanted to become a part of it? It's kind of a funny story. So uh, I was running Sales Hacker. Sales Hacker was picking up steam. And if you were building a sales technology company, it was wise for you to seek me out to ask me questions and to understand the landscape. And Manny Medina, CEO of Outreach, did just that. So Manny got an intro to me from Lars Nilsson, who's a mutual friend of ours. And Lars is also an advisor in Outreach. Outreach was just pivoting from a recruiting tool to a sales tool and had not much revenue yet. But there were a couple of companies just starting to use them. And uh, we met and I remember thinking like, this guy's a pit bull. He's I like his personality, I like his attitude, I like, you know, he's never going to take no for an answer. But I also was really familiar with the space and I loved Manny's approach. I love that he was coming from a customer success and product point of view instead of a sales and marketing point of view because I knew that would scale, it would last longer. And at the time, there were a couple other companies, but they weren't doing sequences. They were just doing like the email mail merge side of it. And I saw a big business there. And there was an incumbent in inside sales that existed, but had some flaws. So I, saw, I thought, okay, this is this could be a big space. And it was my first ever investment. I was an accredited investor, but I never made an investment at that point. And my dad is my financial advisor. He's a financial advisor in, in general. So naturally, he's my financial advisor. So I <laughs> called him and I was like, hey, I'm, I'm going to make a you know investment in a company. He was like, what? Like, that's a terrible idea. These things fail all the time. You're not an angel investor. Like, I'm like, yeah, but I know this space really well. And I believe in this guy and you know, I'm sold. I'm going to do it. You know, I don't really need your permission. So yeah, I'm going <laughs> to do, do it. it. Yeah. <laughs> or, or you're fired. You're not my financial advisor anymore. You're, you're still fired. my dad yeah. though. Yeah. You're still my dad. Exactly. Though. <laughs> I still love you. Um, yeah. So my dad, instead of, you know, giving me a lecture, was like, all right, I mean, you've gotten this far on your judgment. Sure. I'm in too. So my dad matched 
the investment. So my dad's technically an investor also in outreach. So we made the investment. That was early 2015. And I remember my dad met Manny maybe like a month or two later at the first ever Saster annual. And Max never asked to see my numbers. He like bought into the game plan. And my dad was like, yeah, well, Max is Max invests in people. And then later my dad was like, came to me and he was like, you never saw his numbers? Like, how'd you make the investment without seeing his numbers? And I was like, well, the other angel investors were like really legitimate VCs, but they were individuals. They didn't do it through their funds. So I was like, what am I going to do that they haven't already done? Right? Like if Mike Maples from Floodgate put his money in, then like the numbers are good enough then for I'm me. Fine. There's yeah. no math that I'm going <laughs> to yeah. do that yeah. like Mike hasn't already done, right? So like I don't need to see his numbers. Do I like the guy? Do I like the space? Mike's already invested. Okay, the numbers are good. Like done. And it's a seed round. So like you're not doing it up for number purposes. So I thought that was really funny. So anyway, that's the early early story. So fast forward a couple of years, uh, about three and a half more years. Manny and I spoke once in a while, but the company blew up and things were going well. And you know, I was busy with Sales Hacker. He's busy with Outreach. They were a partner of ours in a couple of conferences, but we also partnered with other vendors in the space. And um, I went to Unleash and I sat down with Manny and he just raised a $65 million Series D. And I sat down and I said, hey, uh, congrats on the round of funding. What keeps you up at night? And he said, marketing. And uh, I said, okay, well, you know, we can help with that. We've got a database of 80,000 B2B salespeople and kind of know what we're doing there. And so we made uh, made it happen. That's kind of how the acquisition came together. And um, at the same time, the uh, previous VP of marketing was no longer at outreach. So I just stepped into that role. I did not expect to, to take over marketing at a company this big. This is not something I'd ever done before. And is is not something that'll probably be my long term job at the company, but yeah, stepped in and, and took that over, and uh, now we're doing a lot of really cool stuff. I'm managing our ISV relationships um, with you know partner vendors, so partnerships, marketing, sales hacker, and then overall evangelism. So it's been a lot of fun, a huge huge life change. We moved up to Seattle for it, but it's been fun. It's been a good time. Even though it's kind of ironic that you've never had an experience as a VP of marketing stepping into this role unexpectedly, just like the story you told with the the violinist, do you think that kind of gives you a competitive advantage in the space because you're bringing a brand new perspective and you're not falling back on experience that you've had in roles like this before? Yes. I think like one of the worst things a marketer can do is reach into some playbook and try and market out of a playbook. Every persona is different. Things evolve. There is no substitute for experience, but you should never step in and have a playbook. You should mold using your experience to the new organization. It's really important to do that. I think like too many people rely on, oh, I'm just going to plug in this playbook and then you know run it. Like some things are playbookable, but like not the overall how you market, how you approach a business. Don't put things in buckets or boxes that you know are predetermined when you haven't spoken to that audience, you haven't spoken to that founding team, you haven't understood their culture, you haven't understood how they like to buy and be marketed to. So, you know, I don't know if it's as much as like that never having been a marketer before helped me, or that I've known this audience so well has helped me. But that's my viewpoint. I have a question. Just going back to something you said, you're clearly entrepreneurial. Like the the social media company started, then Sales Hacker. You've got so many different entrepreneurial efforts that you've gone through in the past. So how sustainable is it for you working at a company that isn't your baby? Like how difficult is that for you? It's sustainable. I mean, I came in through acquisition. So my carrot on a stick my incentive is enough to, it's my baby. Like it's, <laughs> yeah. you come in and you, you get a lot of stock. And so it's very much my baby. And I act like it. I treat it like that. I go to sleep. I wake up. I'm thinking about the business. I'm always working and I like it. I like what I do. I'm in a very creative role, which I think 
gives it another level of sustainability for someone like me. If I were in a role where it was like super monotonous, same thing every day, no creativity, blah, blah, like that wouldn't be sustainable for somebody who's as, as entrepreneurial as I am. So just making sure, and I, I actually think that's something that leadership at Outreach has done a really good job at is saying, okay, well, let's always make sure he's in a position to continue to build something. I don't, don't ever put me in maintenance mode or I'm out. <laughs> it, was, it was the reason why I left Udemy. And I built this amazing process and then I felt like, okay, now we just got to hire people out to go run it. I don't want to run it. I want to build. What can I build? But I don't see that happening anytime soon at Outreach. You're clearly building something. You just became a unicorn. So yeah. congratulations on that. Right. We got a lot more to go. There's clearly something building there. We're, so. we're just scratching the surface. I'm really yeah. excited about like the direction of where this is going and the conversations that we're having with very large companies and the access that I have to that. It makes it feel like it's my baby also. There are very few conversations that I'm not privy to. I, so I think that helps in a lot of ways. That's interesting because I, th- I think a lot of people, if they land in that wrong situation, so like this ha- so happens to be the VP of marketing happens to be a great spot for you because of that creativity, because you have so much invested in it now. But there are certainly other people that get acquired that don't have a similar situation. Like, uh, for example, the Kevin Systrom at Instagram gets acquired by Facebook and clearly there was some discord all along the way after that point and and now they're they're gone. So like they're it's interesting to hear that there is that mindset where you can actually switch it to making it feel like that is your project. That is yeah. what gets you up every day. But there'll always be some discord. I mean, I, listen, at any time anything could pop up where they're like, "Well, you know what? Thanks for your opinion, Max, but we're not going to use it." And that could create friction. And I'm sure that happened mm-hmm. with Kevin a bunch of times and then eventually you're like, "All right, well, if you're not going to listen to me anyway, I'm out of here." And that hasn't happened, and I hope it won't. But, you know, who knows? Four years from now, it could be a $10 billion company, and it's like, all right, Max, you're kind of marginalized by the fact that this is like such a massive business. And I'm at the same time, all right, Outreach, like you did a great job, but I've been here long enough, and you know, I want to go build something new. It happens. Like I don't expect this to be an Outreach for 10 years or anything like that. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But you have projects still left in you, right? I've got a lot left in me. I'll never <laughs> stop working. It, you know, goals to never need to work again, but I always will. You know, mm. just don't want to have to do it. You know, yeah. You want to be able to want to do it, so you can work on the projects that you want to work on. So I also understand that Sales Hacker, even though it was acquired by Outreach, you wanted to keep it a separate entity to keep the authenticity of Sales Hacker and not have it be biased in any way. What is your role right now with Sales Hacker? I mean, you probably have a lot on your plate as VP of Marketing of Outreach. So like, what is your relation with Sales Hacker now? So Colin runs the day-to-day um, and growth, and Catherine runs content, um, who we just hired, who was running content for Crazy Egg, for Neil Patel. Neil's super impressive. So we're really excited to have Catherine on board. She's new. Colin's doing a great job running the day-to-day and growing the the base and engagement. So I think we're up from 80,000 to almost 120,000 in nine months subscribers for sales hackers. So that's still growing really well. I help with strategy, making sure that it's growing and it's on a path to continue growing and that we are serving the best content all the time and that roadblocks are removed and that they don't need to worry about revenue. And that was the, the crux of the acquisition in the first place was we would grow a lot faster and we would be a lot more helpful to the overall sales community if we only ever just posted the best possible content. But we couldn't do that. We had to post that plus sponsored content because we need to make money. Yeah. Now we don't have to focus on the sponsored content the way we did in the past. So I think that frees us up a little bit. We got a new website coming out. So that'll be new web design. It's going to be beautiful. We've got some other cool things in the works. Um, a lot of the stuff we're focusing on is spending time on the site and then repeat visitors. So how do we get people coming back weekly or more people coming back weekly? And then how do we get people scrolling through content when they come? You know, I want people to look at it as like a, almost like a university where you come to learn about all things sales development. And if you come in through like an article that you see, 
then you start reading about all the rest of the sales development topics that are there. So how do we better surface that to the people that are coming in? Sales Hacker and Outreach are two different businesses. There's we use Active Campaign for one CRM and Pardot for the other or for for marketing automation. And Active Campaign is also the CRM for us at Sales Hacker as well. So not only is it different teams, but it's different databases. Like there's no information transfer whatsoever between Sales Hacker and Outreach that we don't already do for sponsors. So for example, if Gong or somebody sponsors a webinar, then they get the leads from that webinar. If Outreach wants to sponsor a webinar, then they get the leads from that webinar. But Outreach doesn't get any access to subscriber info or anything else that isn't through a sponsored initiative, just like we would offer to any other sponsor. I want, I want to ask some questions that are a little bit more geared toward you. Go for it. Go a little deeper with that. So feel free to get as, you know, as vulnerable as you want to. <laughs> Uh, this what? is a safe space. Okay. Yeah, this is a safe space. <laughs> we're, yeah, still re- like a, we're still recording. Which is pretty- I'm actually like on one, and I'm at like the W Hotel. I have this very therapy looking couch that I'm hanging out on next to the window. <laughs> All right. So. Let us setting. be your yeah. yeah let I'm us be your therapist. My, there we go. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, the first one that I've got for you. I, I want to know what the worst advice is that you've ever received from somebody that was close to you. Going back to the failure topic, I don't know why. In my head, if you were to say, like, what's the first thing that comes to mind when people say, like, failure is not an option? It's like a, it's a silly thing. Like, nobody wants to fail, but, like, it's yeah. okay. Like, it, embrace failure. Take accountability for failure. Self-reflect on failure. Why did I fail? What do I learn from this? How do I do better next time? Probably something around that. I, I can't think of a specific example from somebody close to me. Has there been like a, a specific circumstance where you kept failing at the same exact thing over and over and over and you just never fixed it? No, because I was taught at a young age that it's okay to fail and you just have to learn from it. Like if you fail over and over and over again, then you're not learning from it. Pretty shitty thing. You don't want to be in that situation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, that's when it's not. That's when it's not an option. That's when it's unacceptable to fail. You're not taking accountability for it, so you're not learning from it. You're not internalizing and understanding and and, and doing the post mortem on it mm-hmm. and saying, okay, well, what what didn't work and how do we do better next time? Another shitty piece of advice is like, oh, uh, we're not going to do that because it failed last time or because it didn't work last time. It's like, whoa, whoa had a lot of variables here. Let's go into the variables. Like why didn't it work? And then, you know, you do the you do the introspective on it and you say, "Okay, well, all right, you're you're right. Now, we did we looked at the variables and it didn't work and it probably won't work because of those those reasons." Or it's like, "Oh, well, we're a much bigger company now. My, now it might work. We can't just like rule it out cuz it didn't work 3 years ago, you know?" So I'd say that's another one. If I gave you the choice, and I said, you can only talk about or work on or focus on one of these for the rest of your life. And you had to pick one, sales, marketing, leadership, or even entrepreneurship. And then the rest just got totally killed off. Probably entrepreneurship. Keeps me flexible and I can do them all. So a lot of people look at you and they'll, they'll think of you kind of as a thought leader in the sales space and now in the marketing space as yeah. well. Who are the, some of the people that you do like? in that thought leadership space, who are the, some of the people that you don't necessarily agree with or align with? I'd say like sales specific. Trish Bertuzzi is probably my favorite follow. Like a lot of her stuff. Rob Jepson is another one. Richard Harris, Jocko Vanderkoos, Sam Nelson at Outreach, Scott Barker at Sales Hacker, Chris Orlob at Gong does a great job. In the marketing space, Dave Gerhardt uh, at Drift, Ryan Benici mm-hmm. at G2 Crowd, Kyle Lacey is great. I forgot the Sam Jacobs who runs our podcast is awesome. Gaetano Donardi, uh, I agree and disagree fairly often with a lot of the stuff he says, like back and forth. Mm-hmm. But he's a great follow, and and he did a fantastic job at Sales Hacker, and is one of the better marketers you know out there. And I think it's good that people you agree and disagree. For sure. Like yeah. That. 
who do I disagree with? I don't know if there's anybody that like I gene- like just an overall generalization like disagree with. I think there's like there's again if we're playing the game like say the first thing that comes to mind, Grant Cardone is probably the first one that comes to mind that I find myself fairly often dis- disagreeing with on how he sells and how he tells people to build businesses and, and you know, that kind of stuff. Sarah, let me ask you this. What's your favorite Max Altshuler piece of content, like a video, a blog post? What's your favorite? Mm, this Books. is interesting. Or book. Or book. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like when I first started my career in sales, not that long ago, I just started in like August. I had this book handed to me by our CEO, Garrett Merguth, and he was like, read this. It's called Hacking Sales. I'm like, Hacking Sales? I was like, this is what I need. And there is a portion in that book, and it's a very small portion. I reread it before we hopped on here, and it was about adding humor because I love humor. I love making people laugh. I love laughing with others. And I didn't know if I could bring that to my sales career. Like, I didn't know if I could bring my personality. I thought, you always think sales is like hard line, decision-making, selling things. And so that part of your piece of content that was like, add some humor. Now you don't need to add in 40 gifts at the end of an email. Don't be ridiculous about it. But you can still add humor and add your personality because that adds a personalization and it makes you much more relatable. So yeah. like that part, the human part that you bring to sales in your books and your content. I love it. That's a great one. That's what does it for me, man. I love oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Ma- Max, what's your all-time one-liner from yourself? 20s are for learning, 30s are for earning is probably one that gets used the most by people when they read the book and they're like, oh, that really rang true for me. Mm. I just think that so many people are impatient. They don't have patience. They don't think about they're short-sighted. They don't think about things the right way. And that's like our downfall as humans. Oh, you're weighing two options, two job options. Um, and one is a 120K salary and one is a 100K salary. And like, that's what you're going to take the job on. You're going to pick the 120. Okay, cool. But did you ask the right questions? No. Did you ask, is that guaranteed or is that variable comp? If it's variable comp, how many people hit the variable last year? So for the 100K one, 100% of the people at the previous company made the 100K last year. But at the 120K one, only 30% of them hit their quota. So the rest of them got at, got paid 90 to 100K. So now it's like, all right, there's the first question. Second question. Who's your boss and who's your CEO? Are you going to be able to learn from them? All right. Like if the answer is no at the 121, but yes at the 101, like you're going to learn a lot more. You can go a lot further in the rest of your career. That's something you're going to want to ask. What about upward promotion possibilities? Like how long do I need to be in the role here to have a shot to do things in the next role versus the other place? Then there's um, one role is in San Francisco and the other role is in Salt Lake City. a year salary in Salt Lake City is more money in your pocket than a $120,000 a year job in San Francisco. Done. Easily. Uh, End of conversation, right? (laughs) As as someone from Utah, I can attest to this. you just see that number (laughs) and you don't ask the right questions and you're Mm short-sighted. All right. I've got a couple of rapid-fire questions here. We'll start out with a couple more serious ones. Then we'll just ask some ridiculous ones. I want to know... Rapid fire, Max, what's something that you believe other people think is insane about you? Insane. I've been to 80 countries. That's probably my biggest insane stat. What is a common misconception about you? My girlfriend would say that I'm very goofy. She thinks I'm very silly. Most people see this like business persona <laughs> that's like super businessy, but every time she meets people from work, she's like, is he goofy around you? Like, does he, does he, you know, is he silly? She's, <laughs> yeah, that'd be it. Uh, when you think of the word successful, who's the first person that comes to mind? Uh, my dad. Your financial advisor. Yeah. Very Makes nice. sense. <laughs> he still has a can of beans uh, he keeps around from when he was like homeless in his early 20s. Like, he's like jumping around from place to place, sleeping on people's floors. 
uh, it was like a camper van, somebody else's camper van at like the end of an airstrip somewhere in Arizona for a little while. I think that's where he got the beans from. So he still mm. has the can of beans in the house. That reminder. Wow. wow. Yeah. What would your coworkers at Outreach say is your spirit animal? I don't know, like a monkey, like a spider monkey <laughs> or something like that. Spider whatever monkey. Has, whatever is everywhere with a lot of energy. Is that the same animal you would say for yourself? My girlfriend said the other day that she thought I'd be like an eagle or something like that. And for myself, <laughs> I don't know if I'd be a sea creature or a flying creature. Huh. But like something that like – Like dolphins are very smart and kind. Something that knows no bounds. Something <laughs> that just, uh, can do anything, whatever. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to know. think on that one. <laughs> yeah. Could be like a soaring eagle or yeah. like a jellyfish. Majestic. Um, what is your go-to karaoke song? Oh, my go-to karaoke song is no longer my go-to karaoke song. It used to be Ignition by R. Kelly, and then R. Kelly became a scumbag. Oh, so right. I don't, like, I don't do that one anymore. Um, Good call. So now I gotta get a new one, I guess. All right, something to think about yeah. then. Homework. Get back to me. About. There are a bunch of songs that I always just like sing. Name one. It's like classics like Don't Stop Believing or Africa by Toto. No, none of that type. No, I'm thinking stuff. I'm thinking like Ariana Grande, Taylor Swift for you. No. Oh, I'm yeah. More like, sure. I'm more of like 90s. Like, uh, <laughs> Blink-182. I wish you would step out from that ledge. Jumper is my go-to. Jumper by... Uh, <laughs> there you go. Like one of those types. Like Blink-182 would be in there. Like uh, Those are easy to sing, man. That or like an old school rap like, uh, like NWA or something like that. Love it. Uh, yeah. All right. I got one. This is the final question. Then we're going to let you go. Okay. And then we'll, we'll let you talk about what you're working on. Uh, would you rather be able to speak every language in the world or be able to talk to animals? Talk to animals. Do you have a specific animal in particular you want to talk My to? My dogs. Dogs. Yeah. Very nice. <laughs> it's kind of cute that they don't talk because then they just be people. Yeah. But like at the same time. Annoying people. Yeah. I never know what you're thinking. What are you thinking? Like what's going hey, on? Do you like do you actually like me? Because you're like forced yeah, to hang out with me all right. the time. Yeah, exactly. They're like forced to hang out. <laughs> well, like we have one dog that has like very human personality traits. Like she's like spiteful. She's just like a <laughs> she's like, I don't have time for this. Like she's just she's like really funny like that. And the other one's a goofball. The other one the other one reminds me of Hey Hey from Moana. Yes. Kind of like, ooh, like runs in chicken. the walls and stuff like that. Yeah, she looks like it too. She's a little black King Charles Cavalier. Um, and But the little white King Charles Cavalier, she's like a person. She's, she like sees through your soul. <laughs> All right, Max, well, why don't you give us an idea of what you're working on and what people should check out? Yeah, uh, so our new book just came out. So if you're in the sales space, check out Sales Engagement. It does not talk about how to use outreach per se. It's more about um, how to build a sales engagement strategy and get really in the weeds with the tactic. And it's written by me and um, some folks at Outreach, but also a lot of our customers. And then also my other book, uh, Career Hacking for Millennials. It doesn't really actually matter if you're millennial or not, but just kind of my life lessons and learnings uh, from along the way. And that was more of a passion project, self-published, cheap. It's just out there for everybody. Find me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn Live today in like two and a half hours with TK from ToutApp, which was one of the original sales engagement platforms. They sold to Marketo. So we'll be talking about kind of the past, present, and future of sales engagement. And then um, Outreach, Sales Hacker. Check him out. He's got a lot going on. Check out Outreach. Check out the books. Check out. He's a great follow on LinkedIn. I think Sarah can testify to that as well. Follow him on LinkedIn right now. Do it. Follow him on Twitter too. Follow him everywhere, but especially on LinkedIn. (laughs) Go right now, follow him. Check out Outreach. Check out the books. Make it happen. Outreach literally wrote the book on sales engagement. That's the tagline, right? So (laughs) there you you go. All right. Thanks, Max, for coming on. We're so thankful that we were able to talk to you. Yeah. And we wish you a great rest of your day. Likewise. Thanks a lot. Bye, Max. And now it's time to switch from a B2B mindset to P2P. That is peer-to-peer. 
I'm going to be interviewing people here at Directive Consulting, my peers, my colleagues, to try to find out what makes them tick, to see where they come from, what their goals are professionally, and give you an idea of what the culture is like here at Directive. It's going to be a really interesting opportunity, and maybe you'll even find people that have your exact same job title, your same position, or your same goals, or maybe they just like the same music as you. All right, so we have Athena with us here today, and she's actually in London. So tell us about what you're doing right now and how long you're going to be there. Hello. Um, <laughs> I am here for about two weeks, just working remote and uh, planning on going to the museums, sightseeing, um, Buckingham Palace, Bath. I don't know, just traveling everywhere and eating good food, basically. This is definitely our first interview in London, so that's that's a first. <laughs> well, thank you, Directive, for um, letting us work remote. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, I want to start off by just hearing your story about how you got your start with your career so far, mm-hmm. how you ended up at Directive. So if you can take me from, you know, as early as you want to go from where your professional career started sure. and how you ended up here. So it's a little bit of a different <laughs> background. Uh, I actually went to school for psychology um, in college, and then I studied it for about three years until I discovered digital marketing online. And then I took a few courses, which helped me to start like getting clients on Upwork. Um, I was freelancing for about, I'd say, like seven months, and then... I don't know, it just kind of like blossomed from there. And I was like super interested and just, I liked how fast paced this industry was. And there's always something new to learn, (laughs) definitely. Um, And just like having my own clients and just like getting to know different industries and how uh, they work and how to talk to their audience. And I don't know, it just sparked a lot of interesting people that I met. And I love to meet people and get to know how their minds work and stuff like that. So after I was freelancing for about seven months, um, I wanted to kind of accelerate my career, um, go into like a workplace environment where I could collaborate more and just just learn at a faster pace. I'd say like mm-hmm. working at Directive has is literally <laughs> like a um, fast cooker. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you learn everything really fast. And that's kind of how I want to live my life, just learning always growing and yeah and then here I am today it's been almost about a year since I started so awesome so if we're moving forward into the future what does your end goal look like for where you want your career to end like what's your dream job well for me I feel like there's so many jobs that anyone can have what I imagine myself doing in a few years and being content is uh, traveling and being able to work online. I'm not sure if I'll still like have clients, but I, I, I definitely <laughs> like the idea of being able to travel and um, work remote, be, be a nomad, basically. Um, I think like there's so many beautiful countries and just being able to still collaborate with people is very special and um, to expand, yeah, kind of like my personal life and, and work life, you know. Where's a place that you've been that has absolutely blown you away with how cool it is? I haven't traveled much yet. Um, so far, London is the most beautiful, but I'd have to say Asia when I went to Vietnam before, just because everything's so cheap, but there's a lot of culture. Have you been? No, I've never I've never been to Asia. I've been to London. Okay. I love London. What do you like But about um, it? never Asia. I mean, what's not to like, really, <laughs> except for, I mean, the... The food in London's not really as good as the rest of Europe. Right. Other than that, it's great. Yeah, I love the city, actually. It's just the driving is very hectic, as you know. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Um, Who's a person that has inspired you? Or it may be somebody you actually know or someone you don't know at all, but that you follow. Or someone that's just played a part in why you chose this career path or why you are the way you are. I actually have... My cousin, who's sort of like a mentor throughout my whole life, I um, respect her and I uh, she's taught me a lot just about experiencing outside of the norm. Um, She is always traveling. She basically farms, you know, she farms like throughout the country. And whenever she's not farming, she's traveling. So she's been all over the world and she does it in 
gaps of like one month or two and, and comes home for a little bit and then leaves again. So I think she's really inspired me just to get out of my comfort zone and yeah, kind of figure out what other talents I have and just um, how to carry myself and yeah, kind of learning more than just high school or college education. Um, like mm-hmm. formal education is what I mean. Yeah. So that's kind of where I got my adventurous side. It was funny. Before this, I was actually almost like an entrepreneurial like spirit. And that was from like Gary Vee <laughs> or, um, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, everyone watches Gary Vee and they know like he's a great motivational speaker. Kind of mm-hmm. gets you also to think outside the box. So, um, yeah. I tried to start my own digital marketing company. Didn't last. (laughs) Um, And I used to like be super into like self-development and made like some videos on that. So I can relate to that. I love that stuff too. Yeah. (laughs) Who's your biggest inspiration I'd say? Oh, um, not Gary Vee. Not Gary Vee. Why? (laughs) Then then who? Uh, Well, I like some of his stuff. I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of people, obviously I've, I like Tony Robbins. I think he's he can be pretty interesting. I really like Tim Ferriss, even though he's a little bit out there. But I wouldn't say there's one person that I really gravitate toward. I try to read and listen and watch as much as I can and mm-hmm. kind of form my own opinions about it. But mm-hmm. sometimes Gary Vee is spot on. Sometimes I feel like he just doesn't really get it. <laughs> oh. Have you heard you know? of Marie Forleo? She's also yeah. really good. Yeah, I, I yeah. do. Super. Yeah, she's great. Okay. Um, is there something currently you're trying to improve on in your life or your career? <sighs> what am I not trying to improve on? I have a laundry <laughs> list. Um, if I can choose one, I would say being a uh, a better listener, just um, being in the moment and really listening to what people have to say before speaking or you know, collecting my own thoughts and opinions, um, because I think just being present, a present listener, um, is really powerful. Not only do you learn more about what the other person is trying to convey to you, but it helps you kind of learn more patience and how to respond, not just by being reactive, right? Because every time we talk to someone, we're just, we're pretty much thinking of what we want to say next, but not really listening to them. And so I think, yeah, that's, that's one one thing that I'm really trying to work on right now. Yeah, present listener. I mean, that's a skill I think most people could work on, myself yeah. included. Okay, I want to ask some rapid fire questions. If oh, that's okay. oh, goodness. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going <laughs> to. All right, so we're going to have to think quick. I'm going to ask these fast. I need you to answer even faster. Okay. Are you ready? Ready. Okay. What would your coworkers say is your spirit animal? A turtle. <laughs> <laughs> Do you prefer texting or phone call? Phone call. What is your favorite day of the week? Thursday. What's your favorite city in the United States besides any that you've lived in? San Diego. <laughs> I haven't what, was, what, was, <laughs> what was the last song you listened to? I'm yours, Jason Raz. Nice. Would you rather be able to speak every language in the world or be able to talk to animals? Every language in the world. What would be the number one language that you want to be perfect at? Mm, French. I don't know any. And then would you rather <laughs> Would you rather have invisibility or super strength? Invisibility. All right. I think those are good choices. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I'm confident in them too. Especially the one about French cuz I speak French and I love oh, French more than right, anything. Right, that's right. Um <laughs> can you teach me one phrase? Uh bien sûr. That means, of course. Yes, you. <laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> cool. Well, that is it. We're thankful to have Athena on. She's in London, so she made time out of her schedule Aww. to talk with us today. Very nice of her. So enjoy the rest of your time. Enjoy the, the oh, remote work, but also get out and do some cool things. Yeah. And we'll see you soon. It was so nice talking to you. Thank you for the opportunity. And I'm so happy that you're doing what you're doing. Thank you very much. All right. Well, have a great day. All right. Bye. (laughs) Bye. And that's it for today's episode. Again, if you're a first-time listener or you've been at it since the beginning, please go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. Wherever you get your podcasts, we've got you covered anywhere you want. 
Thank you for listening to Yours in Marketing. I'm Blake Emmel. If you would please do us the favor of subscribing to the podcast if you found value in this and tell your friends, tell other B2B leaders, tell people that need to hear about this. If you have a website, if you are in marketing or out of marketing, if you just want to learn how to build your website, how to build your business online, or if you just want to learn more about interesting people in general in the B2B space, please subscribe to this podcast. You definitely will get your money's worth because it's free.